differences between you and an incarcerated person? The answer is bars. Just like you, people in prison have desires, goals, dreams, and gifts. They have broken the law and are paying the price, but they retain their inalienable human dignity, even if they themselves cannot see it. The conscious recovery and expression of that dignity requires the desire and opportunity for reflecting on the past and preparing for the future. Our guest today in Hardly Working is someone who knows that process intimately. Dirk Van Belsen is the founder and CEO of the Prison Scholars Fund, a nonprofit dedicated to helping those behind bars gain access to post-secondary education as part of their preparation for a productive return to society. Dirk also served time in prison and knows firsthand what the transformation away from criminal identity requires both from the individual and the criminal justice system itself. I sat down with him for an extended conversation about his journey into and out of the correction system and how he's using what he's learned to help those who are seeking a new future from behind bars. Dirk Van Veltsen, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here in the building. We've had a relationship for a couple of years now. You were part of AEI's leadership network, uh, maybe still are. I don't know how that works. If you're, I, I think once you're in, you can't you're get in, out. You can't get out, yeah. <laughs> Once AEI finds you, we, we don't let go very easily. I really want to start this conversation out just by having you kind of walk through your personal history and the way that that personal history then evolved into the Prison Scholars Fund, which you lead. Of course, we want to hear all about the Prison Scholars Fund. So let's, let's just start out with your story. I think I was raised middle class America, you know. I can't really blame any of my bad decisions on my upbringing. It's just making bad decisions, I think. Um, but what led me to prison was a series of commercial burglaries. And the difference there is, you know, breaking into businesses, stealing inventory, as opposed to breaking into houses. But I guess you want probably more of the story before we get to there. Yeah, and, I am. And, and I tried back, to, back up. And I really tried to, in my case, I think it was a bunch of small decisions that kind of steamrolled into bigger decisions and they were all bad. And so I did, you know, nothing course corrected me from the small decisions, like, like small little mischief kind of things were probably, you know, a lot of kids do. And then those got bigger and bigger. Maybe kind of, I think what maybe fueled it a little bit was I joined the Marine Corps when I was in high school and I joined special forces branch of it, the, the force recon people. And they were kind of, the people that didn't follow rules also. Mm. So I kind of figured, well, maybe by doing these crimes, I'm kind of like preparing myself to be a renegade <laughs> kind of special operations guy. So when you say you joined while you were in high school, were you still active? I mean, you, were, you hadn't graduated yet. You were, it was like ROTC, like junior ROTC or? They might've had ROTC, but I just joined under the delayed entry program. Okay. So I guess I could rewind that. We're going to rewind a little bit farther then. Okay. So probably back in junior high, I did some shoplifting mm. and uh, just kind of low-level stuff. But then a lot of my friends were really active with me. So we were scuba diving. By the time I got to high school, I was parachuting. We loved our guns. So we were doing all this stuff. And then I kind of discovered this, I don't want to say a mean streak, but like a bad boy streak or something. Like mm. not, in, not, not, not only did I like to do the physical activities, I kind of like to push the limits, which included breaking the law. I got a kind of a rush from stealing things. Yeah. So when people would always hear about what I did and they thought, oh, did you steal things for this drug habit? Well, the drug habit might have been adrenaline. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that was a drug habit. Adrenaline as a, su a substance issue. Yeah. yeah that's really interesting. <laughs> and, you know, you can't really get that kind of adrenaline somewhere else. 
So I think by the time I got to high school, a couple things happened. In high school, my mom was killed by a, in a car accident. So that kind of, I don't really think I want to blame anything on it, but it like explains some of why I, I think I just stopped caring a little bit. But then along, that kind of went hand in hand with what I was already doing. And then with my friend Jason, him and I were the scuba divers and the skydivers, and we're shooting our guns and all that stuff. And we're like, you know, since we really like to do this and we kind of like to push the envelope, why don't we just join the military and do it, do it on the right side of the law and get paid for it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. We, uh, we both joined. And when you do this special operations thing, you want to go to, since on the West Coast, you want to go to boot camp in the summer, I mean, boot camp in the winter and then buds in the summer because you don't want to be running around in the desert when it's 120 degrees, mm-hmm. which means that I would ship out to boot camp in January. And since I signed, and this would be like January 1991, and I graduated in 1990 in June. So we had okay. the whole had the whole fall to kind of kill. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, not kill, but <laughs> <laughs> somehow waste my but, time. Yeah, to, to get into trouble. And so that's when the trouble started. And I, I figured that I would go to Washington State University, which is like a really big party school back in the 90s, probably still is. So I went there for a semester to, you know, to get some partying out of my system, so to speak. And uh, then I'd get really serious when I joined the Marine Corps and get all that partying behind me. But of course, when I was in the, uh, at Wazoo, I kept on doing burglaries. I met uh, these charming folks with the Animal Liberation Front, and I got to practice doing burglaries with them, freeing the... I- I've always been an animal fan, so if I could be a burglar and let dogs and monkeys free, <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is up, so I can talk about that. <laughs> Um, so you weren't actually charged with any of that? Yes, yeah, so I did get caught, caught with that, but that was kind of like, in my mind, I was like, well, I'm practicing being a surreptitious operator. Since I figured burglary was kind of easy to do, then I broke into a ski store, stole a ski coat. I got caught for that one, and that felony kept me on the Marine Corps, mm. which is kind of ironic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and back then, we didn't have moral waivers like we yeah. do these days, so I couldn't you know, get in. And then by that time... My friend Jason had already decided that he didn't want to be a, a Marine also. Mm. So we both were no longer in the Marines. And then I you know, came home and I tried to start some businesses, including early, early internet businesses, back when the internet was still kind of a brand new thing in 92. I wasn't a good business person and I, and I failed <laughs> selling web pages to companies that didn't think they needed the internet. Mm. And this was so early that, you know, the internet was like, oh, this, this thing that isn't really a thing yet. Mm-hmm. Nobody's, nobody's going to be on the internet. And we would have to, uh, like we'd put it, for example, we'd put a restaurant on the internet and we'd charge them like 30 bucks a month or something. But there was dubious value of what we provided. So we would have to kind of game the system. Mm. I would have to call my friends. <laughs> hey, call that restaurant. Tell me saw their website. <laughs> oh, wow. And uh, wow. ask them what their menu is. Just so the restaurant would think, oh, someone's actually seeing us through mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, march forward through 30 years and Everyone's yeah, online. it's indispensable. Who was then, when you really got fully into the break-ins, burglaries of businesses, who was, is that the same, your partner was the guy you were in the, going to go in the Marine Corps no, with or he, somebody else? Yeah, he, we, we lost contact and I found out that he died just a couple of years ago in, oh, in a car wreck. Oh no. Or maybe 10 years ago. Mm. After the Marine Corps episode, I think it just kind of parted ways. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think I moved to Seattle and he was still in a different town. So how did you find your, your criminal partner? I was still struggling to run businesses. I had a couple of businesses that kind of flopped and failed. And I would supplement my kind of business income with my illegal income. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of doing low-level stuff. And I think 
I ended up in county jail for driving, like driving license, license suspended for, mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of weeks or a couple of days or whatever it was those days. And I ran into a guy, him and I kind of clicked. So we would just spend all day playing chess and in the county, in the county jail had a little chess board. Yeah. So yeah. We, would, we would just sit there and play chess. And, uh, so we kind of clicked and then it wasn't until, and I wasn't really getting into the burglaries yet. I was just kind of doing, you know, credit card scams or just little low level things, which are still not great. And then I think I was just walking down the, through the mall with my girlfriend. I, I bumped into him and we were like, Hey, I, I remember you from the, the big inside, house. Yeah. <laughs> the inside. And this was just County jail. So I hadn't been to prison yet. And so we connected and then he just had a deeper network of people that did things. So then once I got, you know, kind of got a, we put a team together and I found out who had different skill sets. And then since I still liked the excitement and adventure of breaking into things, it's like, okay, I can do this part. This guy can move it. This guy can do, mm-hmm. you know, so we put a little team together. And I think that's when we first really created our, our burglary team. So how long did that go on? Probably about five years, four. It's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And then your friend, your partner here got caught, if, if I recall the story correctly. Or you, you were both almost caught. He did get caught. But... Yeah. So from the guy I met at the mall, he had a really good friend. And we'll, we'll use his stage name. We call him Dean. because That was one of the, his fake names. Um, and him and I, like, we were the two guys that went inside. And because not everyone was comfortable going in the buildings because it's really it's really kind of scary because you, know, you break into this building, you know, you're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Every noise kind of sets you off. Like, was that the cops? Mm-hmm. And some, you know, some people have to look out the windows a lot thinking someone's going to roll up. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we have kind of like people on the streets with radios for radio backup. So we, we know if someone rolls up, but sometimes we would bring somebody that wasn't quite so nerves of steelish and they would just go nuts inside. Mm-hmm. Like every two seconds, you got to look out the window so it really takes a certain personality to be inside where you're not supposed to be. Uh-huh. Um, so the first guy, Dean, he and I were a pretty good team, but he was also doing bigger crimes than I was. I think he was doing some bank stuff in Chicago. So he got caught for one of his things in Chicago. So he was out of the our little crime, crime spree for a minute, which meant that one of our radio guys filled, filled his role, and that was Rico. And Rico is the one that got caught. Oh, okay. So... And he was also active duty Marines at the t- that time. He was a tank driver. And at that point, you took off. Yeah. yeah. You, hit, you hit the road. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were breaking into a scuba store. He dropped his pager. We figured we were okay because they didn't catch us there, but they found his pager so they could le- allege he was there, even though the pager was dropped outside the store. But once they got on to him, we knew it was coming down. Yeah. And then so he had a wife, so he stayed. I took off. Right. So we'll fast forward just a little bit because I know there was a lot of other, you went to California and there was a lot of other activity and then you got caught doing something pretty significant. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? The California deal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I go to California and I just keep on doing what I've been doing up here, which is breaking into places. And back in those days, just like these days, cops were shooting people they shouldn't be shooting. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one example was... uh, this homeless woman with a shopping cart, you know, homeless people shouldn't have shopping carts. So the police were trying to take it away from her. And she was, a, you know, frail 90 year old woman, or she might not have been 90, but frail old elderly lady mm-hmm. defending her shopping cart with a screwdriver. And so the cops just gunned her down in the middle of the street. 
So they killed her. And the only reason it became media attention was because a motorcycle cop pulled up across the street and saw the whole thing go down. And he kind of, he identified it as a bad shoot. So what I did being biased towards action, which we, we laugh about sometimes, mm-hmm. um, I decided. <laughs> a kinesthetic learner, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Poor impulse control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have any samurai swords. Um so, of course, well, I figured, well, if the cops have enough guns to shoot people, they have too many guns. So I broke into their armory and I stole, cleaned up, cleaned out all their guns. So, so let's just Stop. focus on that for just a second. <laughs> you broke into a police armory and stole their guns. Now, if you want to get the attention of the government uh, and especially the police force, that's a really good way to, to get their attention. I was definitely on the radar. Yeah. So how long did it take him to find you? Uh, about six months. Wow. Which is a long time, actually. Yeah, yeah. So they couldn't find me. And what happened was I was on America's Most Wanted for my crimes up in Washington because <laughs> I turned out to be a pretty successful burglar. So they're really looking for me <laughs> for the Washington stuff. <laughs> and then they couldn't, you know, when I fled Washington, they aired the show. They couldn't catch me. And then I was down in California for about a year. And I think the show aired another time right when I think it was before I hit the armory. And then some detective in L.A. kind of put it together. He's like, hey, our armory just got broken into. I remember this guy from Washington. Mm. That sounds like mm. the kind of guy that would have done this. Mm-hmm. So then then they aired the show again. And, you know, some loyal viewer turned turned me in. Mm. And I kind of I was aware the show happened and I was aware they're they're on my chase and I was getting ready to leave the country. Mm. But they got me just in time. Mm. OK, so. Uh, having committed a long series of crimes culminating in this uh, extraordinary one, the government kind of threw the book at you. Well, yeah, it was kind of funny because not really threw the book at me, but in a way they did. So my sentencing guidelines, you know, they, they can't do anything about that. So in California, when they caught me for the, the armory, I, I basically had 10 years to do. But the 10 years boiled down to five years. Mm. And the interesting thing was of the 10 years, actually breaking into the armory was like a two-year beef. Okay. It was like, it's still burglary. Even though, it's, even though we like to think an armory is a fancy place, it's still an unoccupied building. So that's two years for that. Eight years was for unlawful assault weapon activity mm. because I stole the sheriff's Tommy gun. He had a personal 1917 Navy issue Tommy gun, which is kind of a really cool weapon. And that was automatic. <laughs> and because it was automatic, now it's some kind of assault weapon. And just me running around with it gives me an eight-year sentence. So that was 10. Yeah. 10 boiled down to half time if you behave yourself in prison, right. which I kind of did. Yeah. So, But then you got, you had the Washington state crimes then added on to that. So you had 14 totals. Yeah. Right? So I also had federal crimes. So uh, I was selling some machine guns too, because I was kind of in the gun scene. So I had 105 months with the feds, but that ran concurrent with all my other stuff. So after my five years in Washington, California, then I did about 12 in Washington. And then once you kind of add it all together, it's about 15. Yeah. And, and the federal stuff just ran concurrent. Okay. So 15 years behind bars is a long time. Uh, it's unusual, actually. I think for, that's an unusually long sentence on average. Um, for, for you know, property crimes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot of, as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, it's a long time to sit in your cell. So tell us about this process that you kind of went through that made you kind of question how you got there and began the process of kind of the, the internal process of reform. Yeah. So it was kind of funny because 
when I first got to prison, I, I hadn't you know, face the music for my Washington crimes yet. That happened a couple of years in the future at this point. So when I first got to prison, I had this cellie named Danny, a great guy. And when I was in California, you can kind of pick who you want to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of, we were talking about how they, they really railroaded me. Uh, what, what actually happened was I was going to prison for secondary burglary, which is kind of a low level property crime. Because if you break into somebody's houses, there's potential for violence. If you break into an unoccupied building, it's just like shoplifting, shoplifting from a building. So it's kind of a low-level crime. So I should be, really be like, like, low, like a lower, medium-level prison facility to do my time. But because I broke in the armory, they kind of figured, hey, if this guy's good enough to break in the armory, we're going to put him at the, the most maximum security prison we have in California. Mm. And in context, California at that time had 160 prisons, but there's only five level four 180s. And those are the ultra-violent prisons were full of gang members. Everyone's you know, doing terrible things. So I'm sure the, the powers that be figured, we're going to give Dirk a really, really bad time, make sure he does all of his 10 years, if not more, because usually in, in those kind of environments, if you're biased towards action, <laughs> you end up doing more, commit more crimes. So I figured. You they, break more rules in prison. Rules. And, yeah. You don't get your good time. Yeah. If someone gets stabbed and you did it, then uh, there's another felony. There's another attempted murder or whatever, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever bad news you're, you're bringing along with you. It could, that 10 year sentence could be a 20 year sentence pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I figured they, uh, they're putting me in the, like the worst prison for two reasons. Number one. They figured the worst prison would be the worst time. Mm. And then, of course, maybe I pick up more time. Mm. But as it actually turned out, it was actually a blessing that I went to this really high security prison because almost contrary to what you think, the most dangerous prisons are the easiest to do your time at because there's like a lot of respect on the yard. Like basically, if you treat somebody wrong, they might just stab you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone's really polite. It's, mm. People are amazingly polite when, when the, the stakes are so high. Mm. And the only reason there's violence really is because there might be some gang beefs or somebody's not paying a drug debt mm-hmm. uh, or there might be a sex offender on the yard. So since I don't owe drug money, <laughs> I'm not a sex offender. Mm. I'm not a gang member. I don't, you know, I don't have anything that's going to get me in trouble. I was just fine. And for the listeners that don't know what I look like, I'm kind of a, I'm heavier now, but when I went to prison, I was about 170 pounds, glasses, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a nerdy looking dude. So of course... When I roll on in the yard, all, all these big convicts, you know, with the goatees and the shaved head and the tattoo and all this uh-huh. stuff, they look at me <laughs> and they're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, I broke in the arm- the cops' armory and I stole all their guns. And what are you said, doing here? <laughs> and they said, respect. Yeah, yeah respect. Yeah, so, like, yeah. like, of all the reasons to be in a maximum security prison in California, victimizing the police <laughs> is probably a good crime. <laughs> So when the cops thought they were going to put me at the top and the, and the sharks were just going to eat me, I just, you know, swam with the fish. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was my easiest time because, you know, okay, there's a couple moments where you had to test yourself, but great fellows. And, and that might even be the impetus for the Prison Scholar Fund because you come to this environment, it's different than what you think it's going to be because you think, like, quite frankly, even when we backed this up a little bit, I remembered I was so scared going to prison that I was in the county jail and I was trying to figure out how much time can I do in this really terrible environment and come out sane? Mm. And I think my number was 25 years. I was like, mm. okay, if I get more than 25 years, maybe I should commit suicide. So, mm. so I, I kind of figured out how to commit suicide. Mm. It's like, what's, what's, what's my, my tipping point? And just having that number in my head, like, okay, if they give me more than 25 years, I'll just check out and call it good. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, I was already, you know, 30 at this point, 25 years. I didn't want to come out of prison when I was 60 or 55. 
with nothing. So just a comfort knowing that the power that I had the power to check out whenever I felt like it kind of gave me the power to, you know, weather the storm if it got really bad. And it turned out all my fears were for naught. You know, you get to prison, it wasn't that bad. Just the monotony is what gets you. All right. So let's talk about the monotony and the role the monotony played in your in your journey. So when when my that Sally I had his name was Danny. I was only looking at five years at that point because I was like, hey, I got my ten years in California, half time. I'm gonna do five years. They they hadn't I hadn't gone to court for the Washington stuff yet, and because my crime partner uh, Rico, he was such a he seemed like he was such a solid dude. I I couldn't believe he would tell on me. <laughs> I was like, no way. <laughs> like you don't know Rico. People will do a lot of things if they think it'll cut him a little slack in the judicial system. So so I was like, but you don't know Rico. <laughs> no way he would tell on me. Yeah. And it's like, if he can't, if he doesn't tell on me, they can't get you for burglary because you kind of have to catch you in the building. Mm-hmm. Or somebody else says, yeah, he was there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The Really, the only somebody else they had was Rico, pretty much. Because otherwise, they can only catch you with the stolen property. In that case, it's possession of stolen property, which is a different crime. And all the property was pretty much gone because we, we sell it immediately. So I was like, well, there's nothing they can do to pin me to these burglaries. So I wasn't even worrying about Washington. And I figured, hey, if I've only got five years in California, I'm 20, you know, 27. I'll be out of prison, early 30s. Okay, I can do that. And then, then I was just planning on how can I do my crimes better? Yeah. And then as I was having that conversation, Danny was in my ear. He's like, you know... Maybe Rico told on you. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of bubbling. But the real conversation I was having was, well, how can I do my crimes better and not get, and caught. Not get caught? And even though I didn't really think Rico told on me, I knew that all of this happened because Rico dropped his pager. So it's like, okay, well, if I don't have a crime partner to mess things up, I could just do these things solo. And so I was really just kind of sitting around figuring out how to be a better burglar. Mm-hmm. You know, like how, do I, how do I not get caught? And in my mind, the problem was getting caught. The problem wasn't what I was doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then I just think over time, you know, and here's the weirdest thing about prison is when you're really kind of like in a cell all by yourself. Like sometimes I had a, a celly Danny, and then, but he would, he'd be at work because he actually had a job. And so there, the point is you have a lot of time to really just think. Because like we didn't, you know. We didn't always have TVs or radios, so sometimes it's really just you mm-hmm. in a concrete box. That's scary. And that is, <laughs> that's actually very terrifying sometimes. Yeah. Um, so once you get past being terrified, then you just kind of do a lot of thinking. Yeah. And if, and if you're a, that kind of person, you can either watch the ants crawl across the floor, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I've done, or, you know, you think like, well, how did I get here? And of course, the first conversation is, how did I get caught? And then... If you kind of real, you know, unwind things, it's like, okay, well, if I zigged when I should have zagged a year ago, this would have happened. And then it's like, well, what if I did something different two years ago? And then the farther you rewind that thing, where do you stop? You can go all the way back to fifth grade, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like along that rewinding journey, you can kind of figure where things went off the rails. And a lot of it was, it wasn't, should I have not dropped a pager on this one day? It's like. Maybe I should have done something different. Yeah. Was yeah. there kind of a dawning understanding that something different was possible um, going forward? Well, I think that I always knew that I was doing something wrong. So it wasn't like so I wasn't didn't surprise. know. Surprise. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I always, I think I thought I was smarter than everybody else. Mm. It's like, you know, you know, people along my life had warned me, hey, if you keep going down this path, you know, something bad is going to happen. I was like, ah, 
I got discovered <laughs> until I didn't. Yeah. Um, and then, then the, you know, the realization was when you re- kind of rewind that clock, it's like, okay, I've, I've been doing stupid things for 10 years, pretty much all of my 20s, like really low level crimes. And then, of course, the bigger things happen in my later 20s. But if you look at it through a different lens, I have a lot of energy. So I just focus all my energy on something legit, which I kind of tried to do with my early internet businesses, sure. but I was pre <laughs> revenue, early market. Yeah. Um, so you need an angel investor. Yeah, I need an angel investor. And I remember back in the late 90s, people were just throwing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars at anything with a dot com. Mm-hmm. So if I could have just hung out for a little bit longer, I think yeah. I would have been okay. Bad timing, a lot of immaturity. So you. You never left yourself, but you kind of went on a very long journey. This walkabout, yeah. Yeah, uh, inside your own mind. And you came to this place of it isn't really like, how could I be a better criminal? But why am I a criminal in the first place? And what do I need to do in order to not be that person anymore? I think when I was having that conversation, because like this conversation didn't just happen on one day. It happened over years. So kind of once I got to prison, I just... Because I was bored, I figured I could sign up for college classes. Mm-hmm. And that was a whole journey. Once I was actually enrolled in college classes and how that, okay, so how that happened or how it didn't happen started with the Pell Grant was taken away from prisoners in 1994 during the Violent Crime Control, Control and Law Enforcement Act. I think they figured being tough on criminals is the same thing as being tough on crime. So they took away all the things the prisoners would get, including educational programs. Mm-hmm. But if you want to be tough on crime, you increase funding for education because that impacts crime. Yeah, no, it's right one, one of the few things that actually has a demonstrated uh, impact in terms of reducing recidivism is uh, is education. So, well, I don't want to skip over that too fast. You so you started to think about how I could use this time, and you applied. Yeah. Was it online program? Is that how it worked? No. So, so really, when you're just sitting with nothing to do. And college had always been kind of something important in my family, which I also didn't have the uh, maturity to do in, in my early <laughs> teens. Um, it's like, oh, well, I should just get the Pell Grant and go to school because I got plenty of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what a perfect place to do to do school. And, of course, prisoners can't be online, so these would have to be paper-based courses you do through the mail. Um, pre-1994, there's about 350 college programs across America. When they took the Pell Grant away, that dropped to about eight. Yeah. And I was in California. That was not one of the prisons that had the, any kind of educational program. But since you're in the cell. So it was 350 programs offering college-level education correct. behind bars. Yeah, okay. post-secondary. Yeah, and that, and that shrank to eight. Correct. Uh, after the Pell Grant was removed. Yeah. So, okay. And it depends on what state you look at. After the Pell Grant was taken away, the recidivism rates ticked up. But, you you know, that there's so many factors into that. You yeah. kind of don't think you really yeah. pay it to education. It didn't help. It didn't help, though. Yeah. So, education was a thing. Then I, I figured, once I found out the Pell Grant, I couldn't get the Pell Grant. And I really hadn't mended fences with my father yet. I wrote... Uh, 300 letters to churches, 300 letters to charities and businesses. And it was kind of a letter structured like, don't give me the money. I want to go to Penn State. Here's how much it's going to cost. It's about 500 bucks a class. You know, side note there, I found Penn State. They had some paper-based courses I could do through the mail. One of the few universities I I had heard of because I wanted to be a real school Mm -hmm. as opposed to some diploma mill or something Mm -hmm. really cheesy. So I found the school, found the tuition, wrote all these letters. You know, I was, I was trading coffee for envelopes on the yard because that's a lot of envelopes. Um, but in prison, a lot of people get indigent envelopes. So if you're completely poor, you get free envelopes. I think you get 10 a month. So I just go buy everyone's envelopes for coffee. 
banged out all these letters on my typewriter. <laughs> and I figured someone would buy it, you know, take the bait, which was really trying to change my life. I want to go to school. Here's how much it costs. But don't send me the money. Mm -hmm. Send the money to the registrar at Penn State for the class. The only people out of the, all those letters, the 600 letters, were the, uh, the Mormons. And they're the only ones that wrote me back just to let me know, we're sorry, but we don't do that kind of support. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, must have been incredibly discouraging to, I mean, that was a lot of, <clears throat> doing that on a typewriter is not like printing out a form letter on a computer. Um, that's about 20 minutes per letter, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then what happened? So since that didn't happen, <laughs> yeah. I think around this time, they brought me up to Washington for the federal charges and my Washington state charges. And he was visiting me, you know, two times, two times, three times a week when I was up in the federal system. And, uh, you know, once I faced to face with him, it was like, come on, dad. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. I ended up getting myself in trouble. So I was in the hole, which means like, I was in like another little box for 24 hours a day. I was like, look, dad, I'm in the perfect place. <laughs> and he took a chance. You know, he, uh, that sucker, <laughs> that sucker so, <laughs> paid for my college again. Wow. So he started, he started, he started paying the 500 bucks a class. Yeah, the tuition for the yeah, textbooks. Yeah. And the tuition in textbooks. Yeah. Okay. So you get enrolled. What was the program you enrolled in? Uh, first, I went to University of Colorado Boulder. And I mentioned the Penn State one, but before I found the Penn State one, I found UC Boulder and they had this, this really great psychology program, but mm -hmm. they didn't offer a degree. Okay. So I was really fascinated by psychology for a lot of introspection. Yeah, for, uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did I get here? And, and <clears throat> what does this mean? The unexamined life, right? So, but they, because they didn't have a degree, then I found Penn State and Penn State had a degree in business administration and then organizational leadership. Mm. But it was during the, and part of the introspection came through those Colorado courses because sure. I took all these psychology classes. I actually started a pen pal relationship with David Myers, and he was one of the textbook authors. I think Intro to Psych, Social Psych, and Stanford. Is that where? He no, he, no. Was, he was at Hope College okay. in Michigan. Okay, and and he saw your last name and said, "Fellow Dutchman." Yeah, I, yeah, that might have yeah. been it. Absolutely, I think yeah. that's, I think his wife made a comment about that. So I connected with him, and like some of his things in the textbooks are really interesting. Like he he highlighted a guy named Dennis Krebs, and he was a a kid that got into trouble, probably less trouble than I got into. So I ended up writing to that guy too, kind of had these pen pal relationships with uh -huh. these fascinating people. And then of course, then I ran into Zimbardo, Phil Zimbardo, and he did the Stanford prison experiment. Mm. So he was one of my people I would write letters to and he wrote me back. So I guess that's a pen pal relationship. Mm -hmm. But he would also send me all of his articles. And he had, in addition to the Stanford prison experiment, he had a whole lot of research on like personality. And yeah. one of them was time perspective mm. and how time perspective changes or you, I'm trying to remember the takeaways from that, but it's basically how you view time and how that impacts your personality. Mm. And that could have been, and I think that's where I made the connection to my mom, mm. which was basically like, if you view your life as this long-term continuum of events, like if you're going to be alive for a hundred years, you're going to behave differently now because your decisions now impact you mm -hmm. down the road. Mm -hmm. And I think that what went off the rails for me was, you know, my mom and my dad, their plan was, you know, live a frugal life, save their money. And then when they retire at 50 mm -hmm. or whatever, they're going to travel the world. So they had this great idea, which really makes sense with, you, with a, this long-term time perspective. And then she gets hit by a car. So then I kind of did the math on that. It's like, well, if you could get hit by a car at any moment, 
Mm. Why plan for the future? Mm. Mm-hmm. Just live live for the moment and just get what you can for now. Mm. And of course, because I wanted things I, and I didn't want to earn them, like normally if you want something nice, you have to work for it, <laughs> save up your money, and then you get it. And then if this long-term perspective was not something I was looking at, I was looking at a shorter-term perspective. And that's where this all goes wrong. Yeah, that's fascinating. We've talked so much over the last couple of years about your experience, and I'm always learning new things. I'm particularly intrigued by, in this conversation, about uh, the impact that these psychology courses had on you. Because my perspective on education and training is that we emphasize emphasize the technical too much and not enough of the humane. It sounds like you kind of inadvertently got it in the right order of you have to come to an understanding of yourself in order for this education the more technical education around business management and leadership and so on, that that's, it's the psychological framework that makes the other kind of education pay off. So I, th- I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think it, originally I just took it because, hey, it's UC Colorado and Boulder. I've heard of that place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, psych classes like are usually kind of a, when you're a new college student, you always have to take the Psych 101, English mm-hmm, 101. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'll just start with the psych stuff. And then because they had a lot of offerings, I just kind of went down that path. Mm. And then and once you start questioning, especially yourself, I think one of my questions in my head was, you know, was I a sociopath? Mm. Because I'm in a prison with a lot of other ones that might be sociopaths. If you're asking that question, you probably aren't. I think that's the... <laughs> <laughs> well, but the thing is, it's like I read the DSM. I think we had the DSM-3 yeah. in those days. Four, and then over time, I read up to the fifth one. And I actually, like, we're all on a, on a spectrum or a continuum. Like, we're all, some of us are, everyone's on the spectrum to some degree. So how far am I on the spectrum of the sociopathology? And on the, you know, you really can't diagnose yourself. Or that's what they tell you you can't do mm-hmm. <laughs> because they want you to hire, hire someone to do it for you. Yeah, yeah. But if you're honest with yourself, you can read the checklist. And, like, if you have enough self-reflection, it's like, does this one apply to me? Yeah. It might. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you're really honest, you go through the checklist and like, as I say, there's a continuous, like if you, if you hit so many check boxes, then you're clinically diagnosed as pr- pretty much a mm-hmm. sociopath. Mm-hmm. But some of the big ones that carry a lot of weight are, are like empathy. Mm. So I think what saved me was empathy because mm. otherwise some of the check boxes are, have you stolen things? Did you get in trouble when you're a teenager? Do you like, not, do you ignore so how the rules? Did, how did they ask the empathy question? Well, that's what I'm saying. It was a checkbox. So I, d- I didn't really take a test. No, was, but I, I'm curious, how did how you, somebody else would? How did you, when you hit that que- that topic, how did you know that, oh, well, this is where I'm different? Um, oh, you know, I think I really didn't come to that till later because it's so subjective. Like, I think sociopaths justify anything they do anyways. Mm-hmm. So they're like, I've got empathy because I don't kill my parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I'll kill everybody else. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it was, I've revisited that later. And I, I think, Maybe I was having the conversation with somebody else and maybe the other person said, well, you don't get, you don't hit this checkbox because you have empathy. And I think that was after I had started the prison scholar fund where I had like some demonstrated mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Yeah. And that's where Dennis Krebs comes back because he did a lot of research on um, philanthropy or. So who do you, who do you, when you look back at your life, who, you know, pre your life of, you know, significant crime, who do you, who do you think taught you about empathy? Or, or helped you uh, develop that quality? Oh, my mom, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, was, uh, I was really close to her. And 
And she was an empathetic person. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. So you do these site courses, really cool. I'm on a path. I'm thinking differently. I want to get this training at, or the this education at Penn State. So you got a degree in business management and yeah, the first one was business business administration, administration and right? Organizational, right? Leadership. And you were like straight A student. Yeah, and I, I figured if my dad was paying for it, you know, I've already disappointed him so many times in life. Uh, let's make him proud on the grades at least. If he's mm-hmm. paying for it, I'll get some A's. Mm-hmm. I got almost all A's except for one A minus. Mm. So it shows I'm human. <laughs> Yeah, that was a funny experience how that one happened. But anyways, even though the psych stuff was behind me, I stayed in contact with Dave Myers, the textbook author, mm-hmm. Dennis Krebs, mm-hmm. the guy they wrote about. I, I said philanthropy, but he actually wrote about, is it ever truly altruistic? Mm. It's like donors have their name in a catalog, mm-hmm. or even if their name's not in the catalog, people know mm-hmm. they made a gift. So every nice act you do, you get some kind of reward for it. Mm-hmm. So true altruism would be you do something in a vacuum, nobody knows you did it, but somebody benefits from it. Mm-hmm. But because the world's not really like that, yeah. what is truly altruistic? Yeah, you can get yourself pretty tangled up around that question, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, why am I really doing this? You know, I'm not so sure it matters that you have absolutely pure motives in everything that you do that's good for other people, right? Yeah, so, and then, of course, all along this time, I had stayed, stayed in contact with Phil Zimbardo at Stanford, and I had wrote him letters because as I started my, my, my business education, I was like, wow, the pinnacle of that would be an MBA program at Stanford. So I'd ask Zimbardo, how do I get into Stanford? <laughs> and his response was really funny because he has the worst handwriting I've ever seen. And so he would write me this letter, and I swear, it would take me about a week to decipher it. And I would have to get my friends on the tier in prison. And we'd have this letter from Phil Zimbardo at Stanford on letterhead. And we'd be passing around, okay, what does this word mean? <laughs> it's not the words what, we're, we're, we're... Yeah, we what is this know. scribble? Yeah, uh, what is this scribble? Yeah. But basically what he said was, and he, he's got a great sense of humor. So we deciphered one of the, his letters that said, in order to get to Stanford, you have to be really good at one thing. Like me writing letters. <laughs> or something to that effect. Something to that effect. Okay, so, but you eventually got to this sort of pay it forward mindset of like, I have, I've experienced this transformation. I would like to see other people have this transformation. Yeah, and that actually happened in California still because I was in this super high security, ultra max prison where death happens every day. But you tr- it turns out, you know, you it's a great group of guys, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, bunch, a bunch of lovable imps, right? So, <laughs> and, lovable murderous imps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know that's the whole thing. Like, <laughs> I know he killed. I know he killed funny people, but he's got a good heart. <laughs> he's just misunderstood. <laughs> but that's kind of true in a yeah. way. It's like yeah. you know, so, I, so. I'm taking my college classes, and on my yard, we had 900 people on the yard. As I'm taking my college classes, you know these lovable murderous imps, they would see me studying and they'd be like, oh man, dude, I totally do the same thing. Whether or not that was true, you know, that's, I heard that over and over. They had done the same thing? No, no they, they, they wish they could do the same oh, thing. Oh, okay. Because okay. they would see me studying. And some of them had been in prison long enough that they, they had college funding pre-94. Mm. And then when you, when you finally hear that so many times, like after, you know, the 50th time you heard, you hear somebody say, man, I wish I could go to, go to school too. And you're like, shoot. You know, what, what, what can you do? <laughs> that kind of sucks. Yeah. yeah. And, and because, as we mentioned before, I'm biased towards action. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, well, my education's covered as long as my dad's on my team. 
but these poor guys, you know, the Pell Grant's not available. Clearly, they don't have a dad that believes in them or is going to invest in them. And because I tend to do stupid things, maybe I'll just start a nonprofit from prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this lack of impulse control really helped in, yeah. that, in that way. So. There, there's that There's that whole thing, you know, that old thing, let's throw, throw it up on the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. That works in some contexts. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in life of crime, <laughs> <laughs> but in, in tech startups, it works. Yeah. So, of course, I knew nothing about nonprofits, anything, or even how to start one. So I, I figured I was just going to kind of create artwork or calendars and sell them, you know, because the people in prison are some of them are really good artists. So I was just trying to figure out something to sell. Like, what do you have that you could sell from inside of prison where you have nothing? Very few things. So as I was trying to figure that part out, my California sentence came to an end and I got transferred to Washington State. On my way up, you know, I, I stayed in contact with Dave Myers, that textbook author, and he sends me a $1,000 check just out of the blue. And he goes, good luck with that prison scholar fund thing, or mm. however he said it. So at that point, I had $1,000, which gave me enough money to get the 501c3 status from the IRS. And I think that in those days, it was like 150 bucks. So I got that. My last selling in California, we got him his first class, because usually, if you're my selling, then we probably have something in common. And mm-hmm. he would watch me do all my college, college work, and he wanted to go to school, too. So once we got the 501c3 status, he's our first recipient. Poof, we're actually a nonprofit. Mm. And now it's not hype anymore. It's actually legit. And then what kind of saved me or what maybe maybe lit fire in the Prison Scholar Fund was it took me about a year to make all that happen. And I was in Washington at this point. And then I got recruited to go to Arizona to a private prison because we had overcrowding in Washington. And kind of their solution is they just randomly pick people. And so I got on the bus. I was in Arizona, which totally sucks because now I'm a long ways away from my father, who's a big supporter of mine. So, you know, you weren't recruited. You were voluntold. You voluntold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Arizona was terrible. It's like living in just a 120 degree dust bowl. Super terrible. Even worse than California. California wasn't that bad. But the good thing is when, you, when you're doing time in a private prison, they don't care about anything mm. because they're, you're just widgets on a shelf to them. As opposed to in Washington State, the prison guards, a lot of them are career, you know, correctional officers. So they take their job pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. And that means monitoring the mailroom, what's coming and going, seeing what you're doing with your time. In Arizona, in the private prison, there's almost no oversight. You're just a revenue unit. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like the Wild West. They don't care what you do. Drugs flow in, porn flows in. In my case, grant applications flowed out. <laughs> wow. Because again, I had, you know, I would always get myself in the, edu- you know, somewhere near the education department. And usually the teachers love me, which means I had a computer access. I had printer access. So before I start talking about all these grants I wrote, the funniest thing was, you know, now that I've got about 850 bucks left in, the, in my bank, or maybe 600 after I gave the first one away, I realized I'm, I don't have that much money. It's like I have less than $1,000. A couple more scholarships will be zero. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to raise money because selling calendars wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I met this old guy, some old timer, and I'm talking about my nonprofit, and he, he hears me and says, you should write grants. And I had no idea what a grant was. Mm. I was like, well, what, what's a grant? He's like, well, you write a two-page letter called a letter of inquiry to a foundation. And if you, if you write a good enough letter, they give you money. It's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get what you're saying is you write a letter to, to this thing called a foundation, whatever that is. Uh-huh. And they just give you money. And I, it just sounds so make-believe. Yeah. Because in prison, everything is so direct. If you're in the grant world, it sounds like, of course, grants make sense. But if you've never heard of grants before, mm. it didn't make any sense. 
when you mean everything's direct. Oh, it's like, you know, you don't write letters and ask for things and get them. Oh, okay. <laughs> like in the prison world, it's like you just take what you want. Mm. Or, mm. you know, I guess you build relationships. But, but you're, I, yeah, you're scrambling all you're, the time. You're always scrambling. It's like writing a letter sounds like, and the process is so long, you, you just, it was just incomprehensible. But I believed him anyways. I was like, he, you know, he seemed like he knew what he was talking about. And, and I would ask him questions like, is this something you've heard about or is this something you've actually done? And he swore up and down that he's like, I used to write grants. I was like, okay. He's a, that's how I learned about a letter of inquiry. Then I figured what out, out those. I, I figured a letter of inquiry was a two-pager. And I actually made maybe a six-pager because I, I had the two-page letter of inquiry. Then I had a bunch of addendums and some data for prisoner education and how valuable it is. And so I wrote these. And then, of course, my next thing was I had to go find some foundations. And the problem was I had no, no way to do research. Sure. But what I did have was I had a lot of business magazines. I had Forbes, Entrepreneur, Business Week. So over time, I made a list of every foundation I could hear about. And so it came up to 142 foundations. But because these are like foundations just straight targeted from a magazine, they're totally probably the wrong ones. So now that I have these names, then I, you know, all my friends on the tier, it's like, hey, go ask your mom to Google this. I don't, th I don't think we even had Google back in those days. Mm -hmm. Um, two thousand and four, six. Anyway, yeah, anyway, you said go do an internet search. Yeah, yeah do an yeah. internet search. And so I can't ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. <laughs> 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 so I got the the addresses for all these foundations, and my dad, you know, kicked in a couple too. And then this actually kind of created a lot of tension with my dad mm. because I was in Arizona, and I'm telling my dad put some more postage money on my account because each, each letter is, you know, a buck 50 to mail. And my dad's like, all this postage money I'm giving you, we could be offering a scholarship with that. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, but maybe one of these grants are going to pay off mm -hmm. because we're going to run out of money to just to wrap up the, the grant writing story. Yeah. Yeah. Who was your first angel investor on the foundation side? <laughs> oh, okay. So my poor father was at home getting beat up like with all these no's. So we have, I wrote to 142 foundations that means my dad's getting almost 142 no letters coming through the mail, and it's just breaking his spirit. And then one day, the, An the Annenberg Foundation calls him up and says, hey, you only asked us for 14 grand. <laughs> Where would you like the money sent? Yeah. And then at, at that point, my dad was like, oh, my God, what a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So you got the $14,000 from the Annenberg Foundation. So what happened after that? As things tend to happen in this kind of world, once you have one foundation on board, that kind of validates your operations. And then they have friends. So once we had them on board, then Bannerman was a friend of a friend. They kicked in eight grand. Another foundation kicked in money. Uh, I think a year later, David, the guy that gave us that first thousand, you know, he kicked in five grand, 10 grand, like every year he's been giving us money. So once we actually had money, then it was a different problem. It wasn't like a starvation problem. It was more of a cash flow problem. How much can we spend on scholarships versus how much can we bring in? And of course, we got our 501c3 in 2006. So most listeners know what happened in 2007 and 8. That means the foundations kind of pulled back funding because mm -hmm. the world came to an end. They didn't actually pull money back. They just stopped giving. Stopped spending right? it, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, their portfolios dipped a little bit, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. So you got this money. The money started to flow in. How did you initially begin building out the program itself uh, in terms of finding people to participate? Um, what kinds of people were they? What were their interests? How did, uh, did you require people to do four-year degrees? 
So how does the program work? How did it start working? How has it evolved? Okay, so then once we actually had money, then the problem was we'd better find some students. And there's a lot of newsletters that go out to prisons all over across America. And I had a whole list of who these newsletters were. So I just sent them a little letter saying, hey, can you put a notice in your, in your newsletter? Let your readers know about this scholarship opportunity. And before you knew it, we had tons of people writing us letters, applying. And so then we created this application. And because we were getting so many applicants, we had a, we've kind of figured the application process should be kind of hard. So we had four essay questions in there. And I think we mentioned this before, like some of the essay questions were based off some of my favorite books or some of my non-favorite books. Unpack that a little bit. I'd like to hear more about that. Oh, yeah. So we like, just over time, being in prison, I've read a lot of books. I think we talked about some of the terrible books like Dean Koontz and Stephen King's. Um, but some of the great books. <laughs> Stephen some... King's great. I love, I love Stephen King. Oh, yeah. I mean, but after you've read all of them, <laughs> <laughs> then, you, then you want something different. Then like after the 10th one, they're all kind of the same. But I read a lot of classics. So I, I kind of got in the classics kick. I was like, I should probably read all the classics. So I made a list and probably read a lot of them. Wait. What were they? Oh, I love the Tolstoy's, Dostoevsky's. I think I read a lot of the um, Emerson. I think, you know, the, the Russian ones were my favorite. Uh. I, probably a lot of English stuff. You know, of course, Adam Smith, because I got into finance a little bit, so read some of him. I'm, I'm terrible at names, but yeah, I just, I just made a list, and I have, you know, probably read, you know, 500 books. 500 books. That, that includes the junk novels. That yeah. You, you well, know. no, it's probably like I made a list of the good books. Oh, a list of 500. Probably pretty close. Classic books that you worked your way through. Well, maybe let's, I'll say maybe not 500 classics, but that, that includes my educational books. Okay. Because I just kind of made a big list. And especially when I was learning the nonprofit stuff and the finance stuff, I would, I would have this book list. And every time I read a book, I would add to it. And then I would send that list to a professor someplace like maybe at Northwestern or Harvard, I'd say, hey, here's the books I've read on the subject of finance or social entrepreneurship. What should I read next? Hmm. And they would either recommend a book or they would send me a book. Wow. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's extremely cool. Do you, I'm not quite done asking about the influence of literature on oh. you, but... And that was a rabbit hole from the questions on the essays. Yeah. But I'll tell a real quick anecdote that's really funny about that book list. Of course, one of the people I wrote, you know, this is farther down the road when I'm actually decided to do the Prison Scholar Fund for a living. So I figured I need to learn everything I can about social innovation, nonprofit finance, nonprofit operations. So as I'm writing these letters to all like the coolest schools across America, one of those letters goes to Stanford. And Bernadette Clavier was a, the one that was running the you know, Stanford Social Innovation Department. So I wrote her a letter, and then a year after I wrote her the letter, she sent me a box of books and a, like a little Christmas card. And that was in 2012. And of course, if you remember the earlier part of my story, I actually end up at Stanford in a social entrepreneurship program, and she was a guest speaker in our class. And this was in 2016. Mm. And I totally forgot her name, but when she worked, you know, I kind of talked about what I did for a living. She's like, oh, prisoner, prisoner stuff. Mm -hmm. She goes, oh, just last, you know, just a couple months ago, somebody wrote me from prison and asked for some books. And then as she was telling me that story, <laughs> I was like, wow, fascinating. And then you the, were the, you're the guy who was yeah, right. So I was you. the guy that she was talking about. I was like, that wasn't a couple months ago. That was six years ago or four wow. years ago. Wow. I think wow. your time flies so fast. Wow. And so it was really, and it's kind of funny too, because the, the postcard that she had sent me, I still had. I had scanned it and I had a pick because I couldn't get the actual card in prison because it was one of those cards that have the thick paper on it. Mm -hmm. So they, they probably think it's packed full of drugs. So my dad had to you know scan it, 
send me a picture of it. And I still had that on my, like, I think it was my, my wallpaper for my laptop. Wow. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I've studied Russian literature a little bit. A lot of it is about suffering in one way or another. I think you mentioned you read Anna Karenina, you read, or some of the other... Like the Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. Oh, and I'll make a parallel to even, uh, like, even those, those books about suffering, the hardest books to read in prison were Kerouac, On the Road. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's one thing to read about suffering when you're suffering, and that's okay. But what's harder to read is freedom. <laughs> and, like, Jack Kerouac just tramping around the world, mm-hmm. riding trains and doing mm. the things he does mm. and that's harder because you know you get a you get this little glimpse of freedom right and no rules mm. okay but these russian authors stuck in your head i mean they were the ones that you were kind of most drawn to yeah i don't really know why and yeah. I, i'm definitely not a russian literature expert and i probably only took one percent of meaning from those books they're just mm. neat stories to me mm. and i enjoyed mm. the characters and the characters are just so deep and Every time you read it, there's like there's a different character that comes out. Have you ever turn back to any of those stories, um, like when you're thinking about your life today, or I remember I, I'm up against some sort of problem, and I think, oh, there was something like this in the Brothers Karamazov or Anna Karenina or whatever. I don't really know. Huh. Yeah, huh. I don't really reference them like that. Huh. I think like a lot of the stuff I read was, I would just take my, you know, it's almost like just surface value reading, and you know, I wonder if I'm getting the d- deeper meaning at all. And that's why yeah. sometimes I'd have to read really slow just so I actually get, well, you, I think about what I read more than just reading it. You talked you, yesterday offline, we were talking about the fact that you read the Bible about five times while you were in prison. Yeah. And I, and like, again, it's like, you know, I think your question was, you know. Did anything stick? Yeah. yeah. I mean, other than a couple of interesting stories. <laughs> I, I, and, the, and the premise, of course, is, you know, just be good to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you have all the stories that are making those people. The guy who was a rector at our the church we used to attend talked about how the Bible is a long story from beginning to end. It's a story about love manifested in, in different ways, but God's love for his people and, and love among his people. So and I think I would agree with that. It's like, like for how complicated it gets, the bottom line is just be nice to people. Mm, yeah. And of course, you know, there's a whole lot of here's what happens if you're not nice and here's mm. all these terrible stories. Mm. Or, you know, but the premise is like, just be nice to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear you talking about all of the people that you reached out to while you were in prison to try to get resources, not just money, but just like intellectual resources, education. You know, you were really like working the mail system, you know, to try to draw resources in. Is that part of the PSF program now in terms of? Pointing out to people that there's there's this broader world out there, and there are some people in that world who might be interested in who you are and what you're trying to do, and that you you too can reach out. And you're talking about the applicants encouraging them to reach out. I don't really think I've actively encouraged them to reach out. And maybe the reason I don't is I think a lot of the applicants we get, they're already so proactive. Mm. And this is actually one of the problems with my application. Talk about that. What do you mean by they're already proactive? Yeah. So just a side note here. I remember when the Pell Grant was taken away, somebody testified in front of Congress saying, hey, don't take the Pell Grant away because it's going to close all the opportunities. And I think that 
he was testifying a couple of years after the Pell Grant was taken away. And his response was, you know, I had, a, just like I wrote all those letters, his letters actually paid off. He wrote, he's like, I wrote hundreds of letters. Finally, I got somebody to pay for my tuition, but you know, people shouldn't have to do this. And the response from the, the Congress person he was talking to was like, see, if it worked for you, it works for anybody. Mm-hmm. But for the premise that you think every college student is going to be so ambitious, they're going to write hundreds of letters just to go to school. Mm-hmm. It's probably not realistic. Yeah. And this comes back to even how tough my application process is. And the people we see that are already proactive, you know, some of them, by the time I get them, they already know exactly where they want to do. They have their degree plan laid out. They've already amassed some resources. They might have some college degrees under their belt. They've accumulated on their own. And then when I come along, they're like, hey, I just need a couple more classes to finish my degree. So I'm getting the people that are the most ambitious, mm-hmm. the most hardworking, the smartest, and we, they just need that little push to get them over the edge mm-hmm. of their degree completion or some rocket fuel to really yeah. take them off. And that's good on one aspect, but maybe the people we really want to help are the people that don't have that ambition or that outreach. Because you could, you could even argue that maybe the people we're helping that are already that dialed in, they might be okay. Yeah. Like when they get out of prison, they'll just keep on. So the argument is, this is what's known as selection bias. Yeah. yeah you know, that you, you're drawing the most motivated people into the program, and that's why you get good results, because of their internal motivation. Yeah, and then, then the only argument there would be, is our funding, does that add rocket fuel to an already motivated person mm-hmm. and take them to the next level? Yeah, it's definitely, it's not to say that it isn't worth doing. I mean, I, that's not my point in saying that. Uh, I think, in fact, we need to be thinking about the populations that we're trying to serve in a variety of program areas as, you know, that you've got certain, you've got a segment of, of that population that needs just a little bit of help, right? Yeah. They don't need the comprehensive uh, support or they don't need a deep intervention. They're already on their way. You can, you know, come alongside that and accelerate it. Uh, yeah. So, and that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. And the, the letters actually that touch me the most sometimes so, you know, we get th- probably 5,000 letters a year from people wanting to go to school that, that just hear about us from somehow. And this, you know, it started off with those internal prison newsletters. Once we're online, a prisoner will just ask. Some, some people, they'll ask their judge. The judge that sentenced them, they'll send the judge a letter and say, hey, you sentenced me five years ago. I want to go to school. What do you know about school? So the judge will Google us, hmm. you know, send that information to the prisoner. And the letters are very interesting because sometimes you'll get a 20 page packet of information from a hopeful prison scholar saying, here's all the stuff I've done. I'd really love to be part of your program. And of course that's one of the most prepared people. Mm-hmm. Or you'll get like a little tiny slip of paper with one line on it saying, I'm curious about what you do. Mm. So you know, he's not I, even sure what any yeah, of yeah, stuff yeah. is, but yeah. maybe that's the one that needs a little yeah. more help. So this, uh, uh, this goes back to another conversation that we've had about what's the right way, what are some innovative strategies, I should say, for identifying potential participants, you know? Yeah. The, the people that are the most proactive you've got, you've, and then you've got kind of people behind that who are curious, and you want to build on that curiosity, and then and, you have that group behind them. And then you have a huge group behind them in which there are people who are potentially interested, like, but, but are so, they're, they're so early in the process yeah. uh, that they're, they're very difficult to know who they are. We were talking about, you know, sort of bucketing these different populations. How do you get to the second and third tier 
for your program. For the people that that never thought college was for them. They're Mm -hmm. not even really curious yet until maybe you sit down with them and say, have you ever thought about college? Mm -hmm. Like, nah. Yeah. Or, Or like, Maybe, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. Or what are you interested in? Oh, I just, you know, I just don't think I'm. What they're really saying is that sounds really intimidating to me. Yeah, and they can't, you know, and whatever yeah. social structure or class system they came from, you know, like we said earlier, my mom would say to me, "You can be whoever you want to be." That probably conversation didn't happen to that person, and so they don't really believe they could be anyone they want to be, and so they kind of figure their role in life is determined by their <laughs> surroundings. It's like, well, I've always been a drug dealer. Or, mm-hmm. You know, that's what I am. Yeah. So when we think about people and kind of readiness to desist from criminal behavior, that's where it's the hardest. That's the hardest person. This is who I am. I have a criminal identity. Um, and the first step has to be to break the criminal identity. and and to for people to begin to imagine that it could be different for them, which is what I love about your story, because you did have a criminal identity, yeah. and you're able to move out of that criminal identity. Your experience, your story is very important. And this comes to what we were talking about earlier. I, I just met with my friend, Neri, last night, and she was reading this book called Atomic Habits. And apparently what that does is, whoever you are now, that kind of determines how you behave. In my case, I might say, okay, well, here's, here's the current Dirk. What if I want to be a, tri- a triathlete? Mm-hmm. How do I become a triathlete? And then everything I start doing marches me towards that outcome. And the reason I like that book is because that's something really, really similar I would tell people inside of prison. Basically, it's saying, okay, whatever you're doing right now should get you closer to who you want to be. And that's why that book sounds really interesting. And the point is, if you want to be a drug dealer, then everything you should do moving forward should make you a better drug dealer. Mm-hmm. If you don't want to be a drug dealer, mm-hmm. <laughs> figure out who you want to be, and then everything you do should get you a little bit closer to what that goal is. Yeah, so that's a, an extreme example of the problem that we have in the broader society around identifying vocation, um, where our first thought is... How am I going to support myself? How am I going to make money support myself? Which is a really important question, right? But you never have then this deeper conversation about who am I? What are my interests, skills, and abilities? What can I, where can I add value to the society that I'm living in? You know, uh, and this, of course, for prisoners is a, is a more complex discussion, but it's not that you don't want to think about market issues and like how you're going to make money. But the first thing you need to do is think about who you are uh, and, and what, what you can sell to that market. So. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Like with Atomic habit, Habits or even what I was mentioning, it sounds like I already kind of knew where I wanted to go. There was no exploration in part of that process. It's like if you don't know where you want to go, if you don't know that you want to be a triathlete or whatever you want to be, well, how do you figure that out? And I, and I think that for people in prison, there is a, and you can push back and tell me I'm wrong here, but that preliminary self-examination has largely never happened. Um, who am I? Why am I here? What does it mean to be a human? Uh, where, where is, you know, wh- where can I contribute, express my love for the people around me? You where, know, those kinds of things. Where's Victor Frankl when you need him? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so 
that then goes back to, you know, what kind of education is necessary in order to begin thinking about this pathway that you want to create. Um, and and, and that, you did it for yourself, I think. You deny this, I think, but those Russian authors probably left more of a mark than you imagine in terms of uh, shaping that part of your internal dialogue about who you are. Oh, probably. Yeah. And I think that like even what we're talking about right now kind of illuminates the problems we have with the coding program. We have this really cool... Talk, well, what is the coding program? Oh, yeah. So that's we haven't talked about that yet. Uh, the Prison Scholar Fund is partnered with Coding Dojo, which is a national coding academy. I think they're in five or six states. And they've generously given us five slots for their external program. So these are for system-impacted people that are out of prison. And then we can bring the, the coding program to people inside of prison. And so the really interesting thing about this is during COVID, when we did our food outreach, you know, we created a Google form. I shared it through my network, which is a pretty decent network. And we had about 1,300 families sign up. So when we had this coding program partnership come together, basically they're waiving the tuition. We're, we're raising money for a budget so that we'll have a living stipend. They'll have food. They'll have a laptop. All expenses covered. So they don't, you know, they can be 100% immersed in this program. So you could almost think like, how you apply like white privilege to somebody that really has every opportunity to anybody else. So we give them all the, the opportunity. So we we're leveling the playing field for opportunity. And this program sounds so exciting. We had no idea, idea how many people would show up. And I kind of said flippantly, Oh, anywhere from two, 20 to 200. What happened is we had two people sign up, which was kind of shocking. It's like, we thought the easiest thing to do was get a huge list of people and then we would have to narrow down that list and get some winners for the coding program. It turns out we haven't figured out exactly why so few people signed up. And it, and it could be that maybe a lot of the system impacted people, maybe they might be, you know, doing construction or digging ditches or working in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. They might not see themselves as a coder. They might not know what a coder means. And they might not see themselves as a Googler. I mean, that's pretty intimidating. Mm -hmm. And they might not even know what full stack development is or... Right. I don't know what that is, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. So, so then how do you have that conversation? How do you, how do you kind of take someone out of one realm of life and say, you have aptitude, you might be good at math. And a lot of people are. Yeah. So these are, when you say system impacted, you're talking about people who are already out and in the community and trying to either find their footing or advance or, or yeah, on the outside on the outside. And so yeah. it could be either going through work release, just out of prison. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're, maybe they've been released for 10 years or five years and maybe they're in some, you know, terrible job. They're not loving mm -hmm. and they, in their, in their head, they might be thinking, Hey, there, maybe I should do something different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It has, you know, more, more upward trajectory. And we figured that people just jump on this. Yeah. And they didn't, they yeah. didn't jump on it. And so the question then is, why you know like is it a uh, problem a communication problem yeah yeah marketing communication are there just not people with the you know the underlying interest in this for reasons of low self-esteem i oh, of course i could never do that and so i'm not even going to bother yeah. with inquiring about this you know that there is a a need to foster kind of agency among people so that they they have that internal locus of control that is pushing them toward, you know, I'm going to do something. They, they haven't they they haven't done the work on the pathway of this creating this future self that you were talking about earlier. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. We figured the hardest part was going to be getting them lined up with employers. Mm. But maybe that's not the hardest part. No, the hardest part is, as you experienced in 15 or 14 years behind bars, the hardest part is changing identity. Yeah. Um, you know, and and coming to a belief in the self and the self's relationship to the opportunity that uh, makes it possible to take advantage of it. Oh, and speaking of the identity part, I read her letter that she sent me over. That was really fascinating. I saw a lot of parallels in it. But that, that's a long discussion. Yeah. Like almost every sentence in that letter could turn into, you know, a five minute conversation. Mm-hmm. And so for the listeners that don't know what we're talking about, <laughs> um, somebody wrote out, he was, he was out of prison and he wrote to AEI trying to help understand his thinking. Like, mm-hmm. why, do, why do I think these, these, these thoughts, which are criminal thoughts, and how come other people don't think these thoughts and what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. But just for the fact that he's questioning his thinking is probably a good sign. Yeah. Um, and he's trying to understand, basically, why does, when he sees a problem, why does his quickest solution become a, a, a criminal solution to an everyday problem? So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, that's the whole ballgame right there. Coming to a belief that there's something other than that reflexive response to a given problem. Yeah, and I'm gonna like I'm gonna full circle this back on the Bible for a second. And I think the problem is, or the the conversation is like a moralistic one. Like in the Bible, it kind of teaches you to be a good person because <laughs> there's an implied threat of if you're not. <laughs> but maybe like, I think that's why sometimes I like the, the Buddhist literature because they're like, be a good person because you just should be a good person. Um, but whatever, both whatever, whatever schools of thought, the the point is be a good person treat other people well you know don't be a dirtbag <laughs> and then so maybe like he hasn't had that conversation or those lessons haven't stuck with him mm-hmm. so when he looks at a problem human beings are really good at solving problems like mm-hmm. finding data points and solutions to creative ways to solve problems and if you take r- rules and laws and morals off the table, then the quickest way to solve the problem might not be the best. Right, right. Which is why you have to have some sort of foundational basis for answering the question of why should I be a good person, right? Religious traditions can provide that answer, but they're not actually, strictly speaking, absolutely necessary. You know, I think that Adam Smith's work in the theory of moral sentiments where he talks about how human beings develop their moral, their, their moral thinking, which is not necessarily, he makes very few references to God uh, in, his, in his work, but it's all about a dialogue between one person to another person. And out of that dialogue, we begin to understand what is good and what's going to secure the approval of, the esteem of, the people around us, which is incredibly valuable to us as human beings. We want, we want to know that we are loved and we want to know that we're worthy of being loved. And that's what that dialogue creates. It's not just, oh, my mother loves me, you know, yeah. but I am learning that this is how I build esteem with other people. So you don't have to have religion. I think religion provides a much more stable foundation over time, but you don't have to have it in order to to and get there. Maybe that's even what you're hinting at with the the Russian novelist. Maybe like mm. they have these terribly conflicted, tortured characters. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And, and then, and that brings out that, that perspective. Yeah. But, you know, one of the projects that we've been talking about is, first of all, having a program structure for PSF that thinks about setting a range of education and training opportunities in front of people and saying, you choose, you know, as a way of eliciting that kind of, that I'm in charge of my own life and this is what I'm interested in. So that's step one. But I think even behind that, there is this thing that you were encountering through all of your reading of, of fiction, a variety of fiction, of kind of this moral dialogue of why should I even want something different, you know? And what is it in me that, that needs that? So how do we build that program? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like? I mean, there are, there are programs um, like the Bard Prison Initiative. And I mean, I know of people who have gone into prisons to try to teach the humanities, basically, with prisoners. But this is the real objective. Yeah. The real objective is to try to get people launched on a journey of self-exploration to begin asking and answering these questions of who am I and why should I care about anybody other than myself? There's definitely something there to explore about, you know, we've talked about how do we back up into the less motivated or less self-directed populations in prison. That might be one way of beginning the dialogue is like inviting people in to a learning circle where it's not about how do I get a job, but how do I find out who I am? Yeah. And, and a big way to open that door is kind of through peer networks. Mm. I, I think that at least what my experience was, even if somebody wasn't that interested in, if his buddy was going, yeah. it might be kind of cool. Yeah. I think I got, you know, sucked into Toastmasters that way. Mm. You know, I didn't really, I'm an introvert, so I wasn't mm. really into yeah, the whole public yeah. speaking thing. Yeah. And then somebody drug me along to Toastmasters and and I did a few of those, which was absolutely terrifying, but it's probably good that I did it. And so I might have done something, you know, I did something in that case that I probably not, wouldn't normally have done, and it turned out to be probably a net plus. Same thing with education. It's like, if the programs are there, I think you can probably get enough people there that might not normally gravitate toward it. I, I remember hearing from a guy who was in the Goucher um, College prison program. He's out. He was out, but he had been in it. And he talked about, you know, there was so much demand, so much more demand for the program than there were available slots uh, in the Maryland um, prison system that um, the, the people who did get in became sort of uh, lay instructors to the other guys that they were interacting with who couldn't get in, wanted to get in, but couldn't get in. And so whatever they were learning, they were taking back into their residences yeah, absolutely. You know, to say, well, this is what we talked about in class today. And there wouldn't be everybody, but they'd have five guys who are like, yeah, I want to hear more about that. I want to learn from you, even if I can't be there myself. Yeah, well, I've seen a lot of that. And you know, I've done some of that myself. Mm. There's always somebody curious about, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. That, that human connection that you were talking about, you know, being, why should we be kind to other people? what you're doing is an expression of that kindness. Yeah. Um, so. And I think a lot of that actually stemmed from like, we we're talking earlier about the terribleness of the prison system, but inside of that is like a lot of humanity. Mm. 
like for example when you go to when you go to prison in california you literally have nothing you have like a paper suit some like plastic flip-flops so you really have absolutely nothing and it takes you like a week to get money on your books and it takes you like another week to be able to order like a toothbrush or toothpaste or coffee so you're literally <laughs> it's just terrible yeah. but the you know the love for your common man is someone will show up at your door and say hi i'm i'm bob what's your name welcome <laughs> yeah and they'll give you like a little care package and it'll be there'll be some that they've uh, collected from other prisoners yeah, kind of yeah thing, everyone or? kind of creates a kitty and they'll you know people just kick in here's a here's a stick of deodorant and like cut little pieces off of it some you know tooth powder you know like the state gives you tooth powder which is almost like baking soda mm -hmm. um which is terrible but they'll you know some of you'll kick in some toothpaste you'll have a whole care package and of course that includes critical things like coffee mm -hmm. and soups and uh back in those days people could smoke so there'd be some cigarettes in there and uh that's kind of unusual you think prison's this terrible place and you get there um some of you might make your bed before you even get there they're like hey we know this guy's coming yeah. so they'll go get the sheets and the blankets and they'll set up your little room for you so you show up and you're stepping into a welcoming Here's your new, I think here's that, your new bunk. I honestly think that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. I, I, that's astonishing uh, that there that there is that level of compassion, um, even in a terrible situation like that. Yeah, that old saying: uh, "We're all in this together." Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. And after you've been in prison for a while, you you pick up things. You know, you can. I got an extra thing of toothpaste, <laughs> and so that kind of that level of love really kind of turned into. When I had an opportunity, which was the education, it's the same giving back. It's like people gave me toothpaste when I needed it. Yeah. yeah. So maybe they should get some education too. Okay. So that was the beginning of it. How many people has uh, PSF served so far? Uh, we're at 130 right now. 130, mostly men, right? Uh, men and women. Men and yeah, women. Okay. 90, 10. Yeah. But, okay. And they've pursued education in a variety of areas. You don't really set any kind of parameters on what kind of education. Yeah. But we notice it's a lot of business or social psych. Mm. They, they might want to be counselors because they have yeah. drug addictions and they understand that. Or yeah. they're hustlers and they're just, just like me, mm -hmm. want to redirect their uh, mm -hmm. their energies in the right, right mm -hmm. endeavor. Mm-hmm. Are these people all out now or are they? About 80 of them are out. About 80. Yeah. Okay. So you still got 50 that are actively, that are in prison still. Yeah. Some yeah. we lost contact with. Some are actively going. Mm -hmm. We had about 30 actively going before COVID. Now we have about eight. Mm -hmm. What's your objective for PSF in terms of numbers and where you're trying to get to uh, in the longer term? Yeah. So it's funny. We, uh, we you know, made, made a business plan and we had ideas about how we could scale. And, and of course, all that involves revenue. And I, I totally miscalculated that. It's, it's so hard to get money for capacity building. Very few foundations do that. Most of the foundations want to give you money for direct services, if they do, which means you have to spend it on actually running your program, which means you can't staff up mm -hmm. and build a team and invest in the mm -hmm. organization, yeah. um, which means I, I don't have a development department raising money for me. I'm the one guy with 10 different hats, so it's hard to do everything. So like in the idea is where do I want the P PSF to go? We wanted to serve, you know, thousands of people because we were filling the gap with the Pell Grant. But now that the Pell Grant has come back, then, you know, there's a little bit less of a burden for us to fill all those. Yeah, Pell Grants haven't actually, they haven't actually started Not yet. providing access, but it'll get, it's going to take a, a, a little while to get that up and running. Okay, so 
You've talked about your dad, who's been integral to this process. The memory of your mother has been integral to this process. Who else has been kind of the person or people that are have come alongside you to encourage you in this work? Well, of course, Dave Myers, that early that early investor, we we stay in contact, and and his his foundation makes pretty much gifts almost every year. Probably one of my early board members, and he's actually still on the board. He's doing time. Um, we have we we had two board members that were currently incarcerated. And I think I ran into him in 2008 or 2010, and he's, you know, he's been an integral part of. Yeah, yeah. Anybody further back in your life that kind of, sounds like you were kind of on your own there for a long time, but yeah. uh, are there people that kind of, whose words came back to you that, you know, I should have listened to that person or. Yeah, yeah there, there's one guy, his name, um, Dave Poole, I think. He, he, he was a tech guy. I worked. At, I worked at one of his startups. He was a little startup in Bellevue. It was called Data Channel, and I, I think I got in trouble when I was one of his employees. And I think it was whatever. It was kind of a low level, whatever it was. But I remember, you know, he sat down with me. He's like, "What are you doing? Mm. <laughs> People, we, this is not how we behave." Kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's almost mm -hmm. like it's probably the same lecture my dad would, had given me. But you never listen to your dad. Mm -hmm. But when a stranger, like kind of a stranger, he's mm -hmm. my boss and he's really supportive and he said the same things. It's like, I kind of listened to him, mm -hmm. but not enough. Right. Because then I, then I kept doing my, my yeah. stuff anyways. And was he in your, was he in your head as you were later making your transition? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Cause I, I would always remember back because I think I was at data channel in you know, 95 or 96. And he sold his first company to AOL for 105, 120 million. Mm. And then he started another company. And then I think, you know, that was part of my self-reflection. Like, mm. man, if I had, you know, even, the, even I think data channel flopped, but even if I had stayed in the tech scene, crashing a couple companies, I probably would be farther along now. Yeah. Yeah. Failing up. <laughs> yeah. Failing up. Um, okay. Well, Dirk, thank you so much for sharing all of this with our listeners, because I think it's so important and there's so many pieces of your experience, I think, that are relevant to the policy debates that we have about criminal justice reform. And of course, you know, I want to congratulate you on the work that you're doing to help others make the same kind of, um, of transition that you did. Look forward to continuing to partner with you, uh, you. To, to build this up. Happy to be here. And if any of your listeners want to uh, volunteer, we a lot of our work can be remote. So uh, they can find you online, uh, prisonscholarsfund.org. Oh, just prisonscholars.org. Prison, and are you on Twitter or anything? We're on Twitter at all, pretty much all the social media okay. at prison scholars. Okay. Twitter, Facebook. I don't think we have TikTok, but we have, you know, okay. we got Instagram. Maybe one day. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>